A housing crisis is a bit like a large tanker and it takes time for its course to be changed. But at least when it comes to the Irish housing crisis, there are many differing views as to what it might take to turn it round. You know, there's, there's no quick fix to, to the housing challenge. But we need a fix and we need it quickly. This is a situation which could scarcely be more urgent. Young people living in hostels, our primary school children without a home. With almost three and a half thousand homeless children, teacher shortages, rising refugee numbers and tens of thousands of ordinary people struggling are completely unable to afford skyrocketing rents. The crisis is having a huge impact on people's lives all over the country and there are risks of significant civil unrest. Last night a group claiming to be the East Wall Residents Group um, blocked the port tunnel in protest at the opening of a centre for providing accommodation to those in their international protection system or fleeing Ukraine. If it will take years to correct the course of the current housing crisis, are there any short to medium term solutions that could at least help the situation now? We get the expert view from TU Dublin lecturer in housing, Dr Lorcan Sir. I'm Conor Pope and this is in the news from the Irish Times. Today, what is the quickest way out of the housing crisis? Lorcan, welcome to the podcast. Morning, Conor. Now, you're someone who many people will know as an expert commentator when it comes to housing. So we've asked you here today for your expert view. But of course, there are many different views out there on this issue. There are people who say our housing crisis is the worst in the developed world, a complete catastrophe. But then there are others who are saying it's a problem in many other countries too. And we're getting to grips with it as best we can. And we're making progress. So could we maybe start by talking about your view? What is your view on what kind of crisis we're in and just how bad it is? Yeah, I I think, Connor, that we have a lot of similar problems to a lot of other countries. Uh, And there's two reasons for that. A lot of the countries that have kind of severe affordability issues are countries in which the housing system is the same as ours. What we call a liberalised housing system, basically a free market housing system. So if you look at you know, data from Demographia or whatever, we're about halfway in their list of 92 countries in, in, in terms of affordability, but they're mostly US uh, cities that they're comparing to or UK, Australia ones, and they have a similar housing system to the to our one. But the other issue is even, even in Europe, you see a lot of housing issues arise that weren't necessarily there before because they have a different type of system. Uh, and that's because of the arrival into their market of the same players arriving here over the last 10 or 15 years. So these are largely, you know, mostly institutional funds, basically Wall Street money and pension funds. Mm. And they've moved into Copenhagen, Dublin, Berlin, everywhere and caused the same issues uh, in those countries as here. So we're not unusual in the situation that we find ourselves in, although we do seem to have gone to extremes, particularly around things like the price of rent and the cost of renting, uh, which is much different to other countries, even though they have similar players. Okay, and I know this is a big question and I wonder if you could explain it as briefly as you possibly can. How did we get to this point? Yeah, funnily enough, when you start looking at comparing this to to other European countries in the 1930s, Ireland and Germany, under the Nazis of all people, had very similar housing ideology. De Valera was a fan of of rural living, didn't like cities. He liked the idea of self-build, very much afraid of socialism and and liked the idea of homeownership, very much a favour of homeownership. And it's a lot of where our obsession with homeownership comes from. The Germans as well, even though they liked big kind of urban plans, loved folksy rural architecture, 
had a big connection with rural Germany, loved the idea of self-build, terrified of communism and also home ownership. So we started from a base where, where we, we home ownership became front and central in all our housing policies until the 1990s. It, it started to go awry around the early 90s. So you had, you had Reagan first or Thatcher first and then Reagan come into office with their kind of very you know neoliberal ideology and it took about 10 years for that to sink in here in housing policy. And what you start to see then in the early 90s is the removal of home ownership from policy documents as a preferred tenure, as it was called, uh, and the withdrawal of the state from the provision of, of particularly public or social housing. And that had always been a bulwark against things like homelessness, uh, the idea of the state providing housing. And it provided it not just for, for kind of what we call council housing and for social rent. A lot of councils also built and sold houses. My own father bought his first house in Nixup from Kildare County Council, and he got the mortgage from Kildare County Council. But they stopped doing that. And so you end up with a situation where it was the idea, prevailing ideology was, and I think still is, that the market can do things much more efficiently than the state, and therefore the state should withdraw and leave it to the market forces. And that's the start of the real decline in Ireland came probably in the early 1990s, and it's got, uh, I wouldn't say it's got better since, but got worse <laughs> since, I suppose. Okay, so that's the public housing sector, but when did the private housing market become so dysfunctional? The dysfunctional uh, dysfunctionality is very much a product of the state withdrawal from from the system because the state provided a nice counterbalance for people who needed housing but couldn't afford private housing. And it's not the private sector's job to provide social housing. They're in it to, to satisfy their shareholders and to provide housing at any cost at the best price that they can achieve. Basically, that's what their that's their business model. Unfortunately, the state seems to think that or has thought for a long time that they can also provide social housing. And it's it's not their job, nor is it really, you know, for a lot of them, they're not interested in doing that. So when the state withdrew, it actually had a huge knock-on effect on the private sector as well and the private sector provision of housing. Um, So dysfunctionality has crept in for a long time. I think in the last five years, well, since 2017 in particular, things have got worse because what we've had is a distinct shift away from home ownership towards the idea of you know a lifetime rental and we we haven't underpinned that with any legislation or any financial analysis at all we've just let the market rip in terms of you know bringing in uh, built rents for example and changing all the regulations for that without thinking about the knock on effects for for younger people as they get older and how they're going to afford rent or the impact on the market because you can't flood a market with rentals and, and then you know also expect it to be tens of thousands of houses for sale every year Okay, and talk to me a little bit about the broader impact the housing crisis has on our society, because it's not just about finding a home, finding a roof to put over your head. It's about, you know, middle income earners can't afford to buy. It creates this huge cloud of depression and unease across society. Then you have the issue of refugees. You've got the issue of homelessness. It it bleeds into all sorts of areas of our society, doesn't it? Housing is a hugely multifaceted issue. Well, one of the biggest, um, we just want you to talk about people living at home in their 30s. In, in many European countries, that would be classified as being homeless uh, if you can't afford to house yourself. In Ireland, there's 10 measures of, of homelessness in Europe. We only use three of them. We don't even count the rough sleepers that you'll see as being homeless. Yeah, so in, your, in some European countries, if you can't afford to house yourself beyond the age of 25, you're technically homeless. But also it has other impacts on things like health. And we've reduced standards now for built-to-rent apartments, so they don't even need a balcony. You don't, you don't get any private open space. We have bedrooms with no windows. We have apartments when you open the front door and it hits off the double bed. I mean, this is the nonsense that we're down to. It also impacts on things like transport. 
uh, on medical services, on, on, on education and on the economy, just referring back to 1930s Germany, housing policy in Germany in the 1930s wasn't run by any Ministry of the Environment or Housing, it was run by the Ministry of Labour. And their mission was to keep rents down so you keep wage demands down so you keep German, the German economy competitive. And huge rents, high rents and high mortgage costs are one of the main drivers of people going to their HR department and saying they need a pay rise. Of course, mm. that doesn't that doesn't help anything either. So we have that. And then on top of all that, of course, you, you put in the refugee issue. Now, before Ukraine, we still had about four and a half thousand people who had what we call leave to remain, the permission to stay in Ireland, um, sitting in direct provision centres. And then, of course, we have the 70,000 Ukrainians who are uh, from a different category there, what we call temporary protection. Uh, but that's a huge impact on, on our housing you know policy but we still don't incorporate those people into our housing for all targets which is a bit of an issue so a lot of this stems from bad planning if we're yeah. really frank about it economic planning housing planning you know whatever policy planning a lot of this is very reactionary it stems from being very reactionary being very friendly with the lobbyists um and having weak ministers over the years i have to say as well who are happy to believe any nonsense that's put in front of them once it comes on head of no paper now we do hear time and time and time and time and time again that there are no short-term solutions to this problem. I wonder, is that actually true? I mean, are there any short to medium-term moves that could at least throw a lifeline to so many thousands of people who've been caught up in this crisis? There's two really obvious ones, Connor. So the first, the first one is, out of the 166,000 houses that we know are vacant in the country, there was a lot of pushback about that figure mostly because there was very little difference between it and the one five years previously, which would suggest very little has been done. But the what I heard Pascal Donahue who come out and say, well, there's only 57,000 of those, you know, that are actually viable. So even if you take those 57,000 vacant houses, that's 50, that's 130,000, 140,000 people housed immediately. Uh, if we could find a mechanism for getting them back on the market, there's another 66,000 holiday homes. And that's more, that's not for people. That's more, I'd be thinking in terms of short-term renting for, you know, housing people in crisis, like Ukrainian mm-hmm. refugees. But the big one we have that's really obvious is, you know, in Dublin alone, we have a scope for 4,000 apartments over the shop in Dublin City alone. Like currently, we have tourists living in apartments and, and you know, our citizens living in hotels and emergency accommodation. That's totally wrong. It's the wrong way around. And yet, if you walk down Capel Street or Georgia Street or a lot of those streets, you'll find thousands of units ready to be converted uh, into apartments. And the minister could sign a series of about three regulations tomorrow morning if he wanted to make that viable and to make that possible to do. But so far it hasn't been done. And I was in a rock this housing committee back in 2017 talking about this and still nothing has been done about it. Cork is the same, Limerick is the same. And part of the problem is that local authorities, now Dublin City Council voted last week to get rid of this. But local authorities, if you have a vacant space above your shop, you can apply for a rates rebate up to 50% on some local authorities. So that's hardly an incentive to get shop owners to convert the upstairs uh, of their, prem- their vacant premises, you know, in, in, into apartments. So we need to, do some of the rudimentary things around planning disability and fire access and make this a possibility. Mm. Now, in the longer run, are there any steps or what are the steps that the country should take to sort out the housing crisis? Okay, one of, one of the, the that, that's the $64 million question. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no pressure at all here. The, the, <laughs> uh, one of the issues that we have is that the, I think the private rental sector, these institutional funds have been you know, you can argue that you need them and, and so on and so forth. And so, so say you accept you need them. Like this year, to the first nine months of this year in 2022, over 30% of all our new housing is going to be apartments for rent. That is a huge proportion of the housing stock. And like, you know, for every house, for every apartment you build for rent, that's 
apartment not built for sale. Um, and I think that's a big issue. So I would, and of course, remember, they're, they're paying zero to very little tax on this issue. So I, I think that's a problem that I, I that we've created a competing product of these, these brand new expensive rentals. I would probably curb their enthusiasm will be the first thing that I would do and see, can we get more housing back on the market for sale? And one of the reasons we don't have more housing on the market for sale is because we have some crazy uh, planning um, density issues out there. In other words, if you have a site, you must get a minimum number of X units on the site. And a lot of builders can't or won't do that. So we need to sort out some of our crazy, crazy planning legislation as well around around densities. The, the people at the back of all this that, that go unnoticed quite often are the banks. Mm. Uh, behind every development that gets built is money. Uh, now, the large institutional funds have no problem getting access to money. Well, they do at the moment because money is going elsewhere. But in general, they've never had a problem getting access to money. Your average SME Irish builder has huge problems getting access to finance, even the most basic finance of, a you know, four or 500,000 euro to get a site up and running. They find it really, really hard to get money from some of our, some of our banks. So they end up then going to Europe to what we call mezzanine banks, and they pay huge rates of interest, which then, you know, that, anything you pay more expensive as a builder, that flows on mm. down to the sales price or the rent or whatever you're getting. So I think the Irish banks are the next people I would be hauling up in front of the Oireachtas Housing Committee uh, just to, to to answer some questions about why they've gone from being so, as my mother used to say, look about mm. what they did to now being like, you know, uber conservative uh, in, in terms of who they give money to and when. So... Obviously, we keep hearing that there's, there's there's big issues around supply and demand, and there just there isn't enough supply of houses to buy, and of houses to rent. So, is the solution that we just build more houses? Um, not really. The, the solution is that we build the right type of houses, uh, and the problem is we we have been like building increasing numbers of houses over the last five years, which is great to see. But the problem is. The amount of houses coming on the market for sale every year has stayed steady around 7,000. So the increase from 14,000 back in 2015 to 28,000 this year is going to be mostly social housing. What we call state or non-residential could be either the state buying up or building social housing. Well, they won't be building too much, but buying up new housing, social housing, or it'll be these institutional funds. So the market has been consistent in supplying in around seven, seven and a half thousand houses for sale every year. So that's the part that needs to get increased. Um, so you have to be really careful when you hear ministers, you know, effectively crow or boast about the increase in housing output every year. The headline always, you know, you always got to dig behind the headline and see, well, what is that made up of? And if it's mostly council housing, which is great, uh, or if it's institutional funds, well, then we have a problem. So what we need to do is start increasing the supply has to be the right type of supply at the right at the right price. The idea that supply is increased supply of any supply is just going to bring down houses is, is, has been proved to be wrong so many times. And, and just to, to tackle one other issue, there's a lot of discussion about the planning system being a problem. The granting of planning permissions has never been any sort of indicator of housing supply. A planning permission is just a planning permission. I have planning permission to dish the footpath outside my house here since January this year, but I haven't done it for a variety of reasons. And it's the same with housing. The planning permission is only a permission to build. It doesn't mean it's actually ever going to happen. So the planning system has never been a problem. We've, we have planning permissions granted for tens of thousands of housing units across the country, and have they have never been built. So that's not an issue, uh, the planning system. The system is, the problem is there's a market and reliance on a market and funding in particular. Now, one tool that past governments used was tax breaks for developers. And that made it cheaper for them to build houses and made it more attractive for them to build houses because they could make more money. But 
then in the wake of the great economic unpleasantness of 2008 and 2009, that kind of was taken off the table. Do you think that kind of thing should be explored again? You have to be really careful with um, tax breaks for, for developers. Um, you have to be careful that it doesn't turn into be a, what we call a land bailout. In other words, these are people who have paid too much for the land, realise now that they can't afford to build anything on it and go cap and hand to the government complaining about a lack of viability. When really the problem is they spent too much on the land in the first place. So you have to be careful that that isn't, isn't uh, the issue. If they have any any sort of subsidy or grant like this has to be incredibly well targeted for exactly what you want. You can't just hand out subsidies and say, go and build whatever you want. But the third thing is, if you're going to give people, you know, taxpayers money effectively as a, as a subsidy, you want to get something back out of it. If you, if you go to Vienna, they build about 7,000, the state builds about 7,000 brand new apartments every year. The waiting list there isn't 10 years like it is here. It's 18 months. And people like yourself, myself, Connor, would be on that waiting list and we would get an apartment. We would be eligible as, you know, as a private sector and, and public sector kind of relatively well paid people. We would be on that for 18 months and we would get an apartment. Now, those aren't built necessarily by the, the domain, by the local authority. They're contracted out to normal builders, as you would everywhere. And they get a decent subsidy for doing that. But in return, there are certain parameters that the builders have to build to, or that the buildings have to be designed to, particularly around things like gender neutrality of all things. So, but in other words, the state gets the type of apartments and the type of housing it wants in design and scale and quantity back from the developer in return for a fairly decent subsidy uh, every year. Is there any prospect at all that we could at some point be on a par with the Austrians when it comes to housing our citizens? Well, it's too early in the morning for comedy, Connor. Really what's happening is like they, they're churning out 7,000 apartments a year as a local authority. Okay? Over the last five years, the four Dublin local authorities have averaged 200 units a year addition to their stock, 200. And they're doing 7,000. I think there's an awful lot of, of, of work to be done to bridge that gap. Now, whether we need 7,000 or not, but even if we got 1,000 or we got 2,000 a year, but also like their model is different in that people like yourself and myself would be in there. It's not just people under a certain kind of fairly low income threshold they bring they bring, and that's what public housing is. You know, they bring in it's it's housing for all, like really housing for all, not our version of housing for all. It's it's very much uh, housing for a much broader section of the community because they understand that housing is a burden for most people, and paying housing is a burden for most people. And if you can manage to maintain affordability and keep things like rents down, you're contributing to the overall economy. You know, the competitiveness of your overall economy. So the other thing that happens in, in Vienna with the seven thousand apartments is that you're not going to find them for two and a half thousand a month. You know, the average rent for a two-bed there is somewhere around 900, 850, 900 a month for 90 square metres, 85 square metres, whatever it is, which is a decent size. You can bring a family into it. That's one of the things we're not doing here. We haven't built anything for families. Like the the, the institutional investors call their developments multifamily, which is very ironic because it's totally anti-family, like hmm. no crashes. And you're not going to bring up kids in these places, you know, but in, in, in Austria, you will. Tanish, you need to get real. You live in this city, you should understand what is happening. It isn't a crisis anymore. It is a disaster. Building homes is what is important. Young people living in hostels, in, in without hope, without homes. Young people, our, our primary school children, without a home. It's absolutely scandalous. Now, we know that the crisis has been going on for at least a decade. And we also know that people care about housing and they want governments to fix the problem. So you'd imagine that it would be electorally advantageous to a government to properly address the issue. Do you think any government in the last 10, 15, 20 years has 
done that or at least tried to do it? Well, housing has been an issue since well over 100 years ago when we had places in tenements and church streets not collapsing and killing children and then we had disease and measles and overcrowding led to the development of places like Cabra and Crumlin and all that kind of stuff. So it's never been off the table as a political issue uh, since over the last 100, 120 years. In, in recent years, People want the state to solve the problem for them, and I think that's the role of the state. It's part of our social contract, I think, that we pay our taxes and be good citizens, and in return, they kind of look after us. I don't think they've been doing that. I have some really interesting, it's very hard to explain a graph on, on, on a podcast, but I have a really interesting graph from 1966 showing the decline in the percentage population of rural Ireland. So it's gone, and if people can imagine it, like a 35 or 40 degree decline, and then the rise in urban Ireland, which has gone up at 40 degrees or whatever from... 50% to about now 66% of the country is urbanising, about 33% is rural. But if you match the first the share of first party preference votes of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael against vote that graph, they mirror the decline in rural art. So as rural, the percentage of people living in rural Ireland declines, the share of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael's first preference votes is going down exactly along with that. And then when you look at the, the opposite side, the rise in urban Ireland, you see the exact same increase for all the independents, uh, for the smaller parties, and particularly for Sinn Féin. So, so urban Ireland is not suiting Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil. They know this, and a huge part of the problems in urban Ireland, of course, are housing ones. So I, I've spoken at the Fianna Fáil Ardesh in front of 600 you know, party faithfuls. I've spoken to Fianna Gael many years ago. They don't speak to me now. I've spoken to, uh, the only party I've never spoken to is Sinn Féin, but I've spoken to all the parties about this and showed them this. So they know it's there. Michal Martin knows this is there. It's a problem, but they struggle. They really struggle to deliver housing that, that are suitable for people to live and own in urban areas. And it's not really a struggle. I think it's more of an ideological struggle than, than anything else, but they've failed to do it and I can't see them changing really. So... That's not very optimistic, Lorcan. I'm not going to lie to you. Now, we know that people are, are tired of the problem and concerned that it hasn't been addressed. But based on what you've been saying, we shouldn't be expecting any class of real solution anytime soon. So where should we set our expectations? What is the minimum we can hope this government and the next government, whoever it might be, will achieve? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I hate being Dr. Doom about all this. I, I really do. It's kind of, it's miserable. I wish I was engaged in a more cheerful topic like English literature or something like this. We talk about <laughs> positive things. But I mean, it's, I, I don't think we should lower our expectations because that's just playing into the playing into the trap of, of you know, allowing standards to be reduced. I think we should increase our expectations. And I think people like myself and yourself and your podcast and Mick Clifford and everybody else who does all this kind of stuff, you know, all we can do is put pressure on the government to deliver the right type of product at the right at the right price and embarrass them into it. Really, you're kind of, you know, every time I I, I bring this up, it, it's it's not necessary. I'm not political and I'm not a member of any political party, but part of the, the mission is to try and emphasize to government that you know you're doing the wrong thing and you're doing the wrong thing again and again and again. And your current policy is not that much different from the previous one. And you know, just try and kind of you know wake them up to the fact that what they're what they're doing and what they have done is wrong. And, and part of the problem is that Ministers and officials are far too close to the lobbyists uh, and they're far too keen to listen to what the lobbyists have. And it's too easy to dismiss the likes of myself and, and other people uh, like me. But, you know, ultimately, I haven't been wrong yet, I think. Uh, and whereas they're consistently wrong. So, you know, we'll see how that plays out at the, at the election. Dr. Lorcan, sir, thank you very much for talking to us. That's it for today. This episode of In the News was produced by Aideen Finnegan and Suzanne Brennan. We'll be back on Friday.